Well, today we're going to talk about the mission and the vision of Restoration Road. But what I really want to talk about is the mission of God and how the mission of the church is to participate in the mission of God. I want to ask forgiveness because one of the pastor's wives are wearing a Broncos t-shirt. I think that this could be an order for church discipline, but we're going to pray and love them. We love our enemies and we turn the other cheek around here. But I want to read this to you first, Psalm 23. And I want you guys to focus on the words because I'm going to ask you a question after. Okay? The Lord is my shepherd. I'm going to read it twice because you can never read the word of God too much. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So I have this question for you. When you hear that chapter... Is that chapter all about David and his glory or all about God and his glory? We call this cat and dog theology. So if you heard that psalm and that psalm was all about how awesome David was and you read it into your own life and said how awesome you are in your glory, you're a cat. Because they say a cat, now I'm not knocking any cats here. If you've got a cat, love that cat with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But cats, their owners take care of them. This is what they say, just this analogy I use. An owner takes care of their cat. They bathe them, they feed them, they love them. They even start and put these little sweatshirts on them and stuff like that. And the cat says, I must be God. But when you take care of a dog, you bathe the dog, you play with the dog, you take the dog for a walk, you get the dog trained, you put that little sweater on him. The dog says, he must be God. And we want to start there. Because the mission of God is not primarily about us. It's not about you and me. This mission does no, not revolve around us. Life does not revolve around us. God created the earth for his glory. God's mission is for his namesake. Why did he take care of David? Why would goodness and mercy follow him all the days of his life? Why was he clothed with all that kinds of grace? For his namesake. And we've read through those verses many times. It's about God's glory. And that's the best news you could ever hear. Because when it's about God's glory and we are worshiping him as we were made to do, you will be the most happy in your life. And you guys know I preach this a lot because it's the truth. Many people in our culture, many times we do the same. We try to find happiness by creating a world that's about us, by being self-centered by trying to get more, by trying to obtain more, by trying to get things we think will make us happy if it's all about you. In there's seasons and there's times where even that appeases us. But you always come back to the place, just like an addict does with drugs, where you say, 
I gotta get another fix, I'm low. I gotta get another fix, I'm low. You are never ultimately satisfied when life is just about you and primarily about you. You are satisfied when you live your life for the glory of God and the glory of God alone. Because that's how you were fashioned. That's how you were made. You were made to find your greatest joy and bring glory to God. God made us in his image to be like him, to know him, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So that's where we really want to start to realize the mission of God, the mission of church is about bringing glory to God. So let's talk about what the mission of God is. And it's a beautiful time to actually preach on this because this is the last week of... um a sermon series entitled The Storyteller, where we really went through the grand narrative of the Bible and talked about all talked about Jesus, all for his glory, so we can understand that. Because last week we talked about God's ultimate um, mission would come together as he made a new heavens and new earth and lifted the consequences of sin. We saw God restore all things. So God's mission is to restore all things, hear this, for the glory of his name and the good of his people. And you've heard that whole story, okay? So why did he create man? He created man for his glory. We were talking about this in family worship with my kids this week. Somehow we talked about the story of um, the fall. And Kira somehow calls it the story of the poison apple. I don't know where she got this. I said, what they do? They ate the poison apple. I don't know if someone told us. She just came up. I said, it was kind of a poison apple. So we're talking through that. And what happens there is God creates man in his image for his glory, but he gives us free will. Because he doesn't create robots that have to worship him, because that would be a nightmare. Imagine you had a family that had to love you. They didn't even choose to love you. You're just like, I love you. You're awesome. You'd be like, man, that feels cold. But when someone chooses to love you, that's what a relationship is all about. So he makes man with free will in his image to... And he wants them to choose to love him. And he puts the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in it, showing that man has a choice to love him. And there's many other theological uh, implications to that. But that's not what today's message is about. And But man chooses to disobey God. And he chooses to eat of the fruit he was told not to eat of. But the big thing I want you to ask yourself is, why did he eat of that fruit? Why did Adam and Eve eat of that fruit? So they could be like God, right? Is that what Satan told them? They wanted to be like God. If you eat this, you'll be like God. So in their minds, if they ate that, they would be the object of worship. They would be the ultimate. They would be the center of the world. They would be the center of the life. They would make the call of where they go and what they do and what's right and what's wrong. They wanted to be God. But God didn't create them for, create us for us to be God but for us to bring him glory and, of course, find joy in that. So we've seen in Genesis 3.15, we see the fall, and I want to come back to this one more time. God proclaims even in that that he will send a Savior who will restore all things, and in the end, sin will be lifted, the curse will be gone. The question is, what does God have to restore? He has to restore relationships because we're fallen, and he has to restore creation. So relationships are broken from sin. This is why when people ask me about Oh, well, if you believe in God or if you're from another religion or they believe in God and they're good, don't you go to heaven? No. You know why? Because there's a big problem that only Jesus deals with. Sin. 
No one, no other religion deals with sin. You can't look inside and have your sins forgiven. Bill, people say, look inside for the power. There's no power in you, there's power on the cross. You keep looking inside, you're going to get real depressed. You got to look to the cross and be changed. You got to look at the tr- cross and reflect the cross. No other religion, whether it's the Muslim faith or Buddhist, with the, Buddhism, which doesn't even have a deity. And of course, you know, all other world religions, there's so many of them. There's no way to deal with sin. And God is holy, therefore he cannot fellowship with sin. He has to deal with sin to be a just and holy God. He's not just going to say, never mind. That's what some people say. Oh, you're a sinner, never mind. Just come on. Imagine we did that in our judicial system. Imagine someone broke into your house and you said, oh, never mind. Imagine someone killed your family and said, oh, never mind. That's not justice. That's not holy. That's not right. Sin has to be dealt with in order for us to be in a right relationship with God. So your great-great-granddaddy, Adam, maybe a few more greats than that, sinned. Therefore, everyone is imputed guilt. Mean everyone is born with a sin nature. You're a sinner by nature and you're a sinner by choice. Every one of us has chosen to willingly disobey God and said we knew better. I don't think too many people will argue with that. So we need to be imputed righteousness, the righteousness of God, in, in order to be in relationship with God. So God has to restore a relationship between his image bearers and him. And we talked last week about him restoring creation and lifting the curse. But what I want to come to right now is how does God restore all things? He restores it through the power of the gospel. This is how he restores relationship between God and man. This is how he restores relationship and lifts the curse in creation. This is how he restores all things. Because he deals with sin through the person and work of Jesus. This is why this is the center of every message of almost all our songs. Bring it back to this. We are centered on the gospel because the gospel is the only thing that ultimately restores. Because we need that imputed righteousness from Jesus on the cross in that perfect life. And he takes our sin in order to be in right relationship with God by grace through faith. What I want you guys to hear today is how powerful the gospel is. All right? I want to read you something. There was a guy who did a decade study. Because many people say the church should just be, the church's primary goal should be giving shelter to the homeless. The church's primary goal should be feeding the hungry. The church should be running in every 5K that Wakefield Lake does to bring money to those in need. Listen, those are all good things. If I get ready for a 5K, I'm doing it. Those are all great things. We serve. We help a mission of deeds. We help feed the hungry. We want to do more. Yes, do those things. But those things primarily don't restore and primarily don't save. Let me go on. This guy did a decade study. This was a secular man. I don't believe he was a Christian from what I understood. He was, he was doing a, imagine studying something for 10 years. I have trouble studying something for an hour. This dude took 10 years of his life and is studying What influenced the health of the nations the most? What influenced the health of the nations? Now, you might have different answers. You might say, oh, if there was someone that just fed the hungry and started something to do that. If there's someone who just went out to stop um, sex trafficking, all those things. If those were the primary things, that's what would help be the best for the health of the nations. 
But let me share with you what this guy who is not even a Christian didn't want to come to this conclusion. In the language he used, he says, it hit me like an atomic bomb. He's saying thunder, lightning. He, he's using all these dramatic exaggerations to say how much it hit him. I wouldn't call them exaggerations, but this real dramatic language. So this missionary, uh, this guy's name was, um, I think it was Robert Woodbury. He was doing this for the American Political Science Review. And he came up, he defends this thesis. He said, the work of missionaries turns out to be the single largest factor in ensuring the health of the nations. This was a discovery that he says landed on him like an atomic bomb. Ten years of stu study. Guy who is not a believer. What is the best for the health of our world, the health of our nation? It doesn't end there. <coughs> he says, areas where Protestant missionaries had a significant presence in the past are on average more economically developed today with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher education attainment, especially for women, and more robust membership in non-governmental associations. Now, I want to share what happened to the nation because those are all great things. We want, we want lower infant mortality. We want better education. We want all those things are great. But they didn't go there with that mission. The mission was, we're not going to try to raise the literacy rate. We're not going for lower infant mortality. That wasn't their mission. This is the next thing that blew my mind even. He says, then comes the all-important observation, when, which inexplicably, please hear again, this guy's not even a Christian, Woodbury calls a nuance to his conclusion. I would call it a thunderbolt, he observed. There's one important nuance to all this. The positive effect of missionaries on democracy applies only to conversionary Protestants. Protestant clergy financed by the state as well as Catholic missionaries prior to the 1960s had no comparable effect in areas where they worked. Now that's an atomic bomb. Even people who came from Jesus-believing church that weren't focused on conversions did not have effect for the health of the nations. People giving their lives, feeding the poor, helping people, clothing those who had nothing, giving shelter to the homeless. They did not have the same effect as those who were focused on the gospel that brought conversion, the gospel that brought people to faith and transformed life. Because when you focus on the gospel, lives are transformed. And when you're transformed by Jesus, you take care of the poor. When you're transformed by Jesus, you fight for the life of the innocent. When you are transformed by Jesus, you give your life to help the economy and the health of everything. The health of your city, the health of your town, the health of your state, the health of the nation. When you are transformed by Jesus, you work for the good of the area. That is so huge to hear right now. And I'm always glad John came right at the intermission, so I finished the point. If I was fighting off that gospel stuff and John came in, that's when I really got to go home and repent. But this one, I feel good about. All right. So people always ask me. They always ask me. Are you trying to convert people? You say that like you're trying to convert me. Absolutely. If you're not trying to convert people, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with you. 
if you're not trying to convert people, something else is more precious to you than God and the gospel. It could be your reputation. Some of you, your reputation is so precious to you that you wouldn't dare have an awkward conversation with somebody. Everyone just got shook up. Yeah. I'll mess up the Patriots game on you. Some of you, your job is so important to you that you're an undercover Christian. And what did Jesus always say to people who said, I believe in you, I love you, I will follow you. There was a rich dude who said, I believe you, I believe in everything you preach, everything you say. And he said, well, give that up. He said, I can't do that. He says, then you can't follow me. Can you imagine that? In our society, we say, oh, he's doing all these good things, you believe in what I say. But Jesus said, if you value that more than me, then you can't be a disciple of me. But I say that to shake you up a little bit. Because it's always going to be awkward sharing the gospel. I remember I was crazy radical when I got there. I shared with some of your stories. I didn't share this story. I hope. I'm, they're starting to run into each other now. I'm getting scared. If I tell a story twice, forgive me. But I was so radical. And I'm telling you, I worked. I was an electrical apprentice. And we all had our little desk. And we worked in the Gillette factory where um, my boss had a contract. And I got a hold of the doctor in the hell hit me and the doctor of heaven hit me and the gospel hit me and I just started writing stuff on paper and pinning it on my desk. <laughs> just scriptures. Boom, 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 boom. I was radical. So all the dudes would come in and they didn't like me anyways. They'd be like, this dude. So they reported me. They reported me. And I'm just walking around. I'm like 19, 20 years old. Next day I'm sitting in the office with the manager of Gillette and this guy saying, Joey, you can't, you can't be doing this. You can't be pitting these things up. And we had a whole conversation. I didn't get fired, though. It's all right. Jesus got your back. Don't value things more because God takes care of you. God takes care of you. Um, have you guys heard of the, the uh, he's like a, a comedian, a musician, musician, um, pendulette. Have you guys heard of him? He's in Las Vegas. He does that kind of stuff. And um, so he's an atheist. I'm talking like an evangelical atheist. You know what I mean? Just preaching his, what? Magician and a comedian. Penn and Teller. But his last name's Gillette. Teller is his buddy. All right. Penn Gillette, who is a musician, Penn and Teller, you're with me. So this dude is an atheist. And after one of his shows, there was a person waiting outside for him. And this dude had one of those little Bibles, you know, had the Psalms and Proverbs, and they had the New Testament, all the Psalms and the New Testament. And the guy went over to him and he said, I want to give you this. And he looked into his eyes. This is on YouTube if you want to check it out. He looked into his eyes and said, I want you to read this. I'm not a weird dude. I just feel like I need to give this to you. And he said it with kind, with humility. He, he shared this with um, Angelette. And... Um, it impacted him. Now, he's still an atheist, but it impacted him so much that he went to YouTube and made a video and said, this was a good man. He wasn't doing it for any other reason but concern for my soul. And why it impacted him so much, he says, if there's people out there, if Christians out there truly believe in heaven and hell and Jesus is the only way to salvation, he says, I always thought that they should be proselytizing. And he says that with a passionate way. He's like, how much do you have to hate someone 
to believe they're going to hell and not share with them a truth that could cause them to be pardoned from hell? Or how much you need to love other things in your life not to share the gospel with people? That's like if someone is going to get hit by a truck, the truck's coming, you're thinking, I'm going to look stupid. Get out of the way! I'm going to look stupid if I start doing this. Well, at least I still got my reputation. Now, it's a longer truck hit. <laughs> you know what I mean? When things are so um, happen so quickly, we'll yell. And years sometimes, but people are still going to hit by that truck, even if it takes 10 to 30 years. And I say that to try to help us understand, because the mission of God is to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. The mission of God is to restore all things for the glorious name and the good of his people. The most powerful thing there is for restoration is the gospel. And here we come to the mission of the church. Because this is important because many people have all these kind of meetings. What is the mission of the church? The mission of the church was established by Jesus. Okay? We don't have to go figure out what the mission of the church is. Let's read Matthew 28, 19, and 20. If you could turn there with me. This is Jesus laying the groundwork for what our mission is. <coughs> it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the day, of the age and the day. So the mission of the church is not separate from the mission of God. Hear this. The mission of God is to restore all things. The mission of the church is to participate in restoring all things. How are things restored? Through the proclamation of the gospel and making disciples. You get to keep it nice and easy. I was making a bunk bed for my, my daughters the other day. Like they send you the stuff. I didn't actually make it from scratch. But you get you got the little thing. I was going to invite Joe Vec to help me. But I realized it was probably a two-hour project. And if Joe Vec got involved, we'll be still making that bed right now. But it would be a perfect bed. But listen, I, I can't deal with that kind of stuff. I'm moving and weaving. He's watching down poles. He's, I don't even know what he's doing. It's its forever. He's got toothbrush. I'm telling you, I'm not making the stuff. Too, wiping it. I don't even know. But. I was caught between, am I going to make this bed? Because I knew Papa's been staring along my glory. You know what I mean? So we read these books about Daddy being the one who fixes all things. They're like, Papa does that. I'm like, this dude's stepping in on my ground. Every time something broke, he's putting it together and bringing it to the kids. I'm like, man, I'm slacking here. Everything in the house is like, Papa fix this, Dada. Papa fix this. I'm like, i I got to step my game up here. <clears throat> so I said, I'm going to build this bed. And I started to build the bed all, all by myself. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, it was coming together nice. But then Talia peeked in the door and said, Donna, can I help? I said, all right, but I'm thinking to myself, she ain't stealing my glory, man. She can help out, but I'm taking credit for this bed. And so we started putting together. It's coming together. It's starting to really look good. Kara pumps in, like, late in the game. But she's still participating. And she's helping. Can I hold stuff? Can I help? We made this bed, and the bed came out great. I get all the credit for the bed, if I'm honest with you guys. Still, Kira, even with this new bed, says, thanks for making this bed. Dada, thanks for doing this bed. It's awesome. What they say to me, you know what they say? Dada, we helped you make this bed. So they participate in the glory that's mine. So it's my mission was to make that bed. 
I get the glory for it. I'm the dad that gets glory for making the bed. That was the mission. But I allowed them to come in on the mission and participate and help make the bed. It's the same with the mission of the church. God gets all the glory for what's going to be done. There'll be no boasting of what we have done or what we accomplished. But by being a gracious and loving Father, He allow, allows us to participate by proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. Does that make sense, guys? That is very important. And the reason I put participate, because some churches will get up and give a vision and mission thing, and they really think that they're the church that's going to bring it all. That is crazy talk. There are many other churches who love Jesus, love his mission, who aren't even in our denomination or network, who love Jesus with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need them all to preach this gospel and make disciples. Northeast is messed up and does not love God and does not love the gospel. And the amount of people there are and the amount of churches are, we need a thousand more churches to preach this gospel. So the reason I say participate it, because we're not the ones bringing restoration. Jesus is. And he has many churches and many people, many men and women who are called to do that. And Restoration Road is just part of the picture. So, of course, what is the mission of Restoration Road? I want to read this out for you. The mission of Restoration Road Church is to participate in bringing restoration to greater Boston by proclaiming the gospel and making disciples for the glory of God and the good of his people. Very simple. Very simple. Because we're not making up a mission. What we do have to do is contextualize. You have to contextualize to reach Greater Boston. Because Greater Boston is like ice fishing. I was doing fundraising for this church, right? And the dude sat down and he said, Joey, nine out of ten people who try to plant a church, and, and they usually come from the south. These brothers just all wound up, just got out of some seminary, and they're wound up like, Northeast, they need churches up there. We're going to plant a church. It's going to be awesome. I'm so strong. Nine out of ten of them go home. Nine out of ten people who try to plant churches in the northeast go home. So it's like ice fishing. Paul's not here today, but he invited me ice fishing. And there's three things I'm real scared of. Sharks, heights, and ice. Sharks, heights, and ice. Like, I want to stay away from those things. I don't want them to be part of my festivities. And like, you know. But Paul asked me, you want to go ice fishing? He finally said, it was the coldest night, like, on record in history. And I said, the lake has got to be frozen at least a foot. So I'm going to go ice fishing. So I get all geared up. I go out and buy new gloves and everything. And um, Paul's there earlier. And I call him because I'm trying to find the parking spot. And he says, can you swing by and pick me up because I want to run an errand. What's he talking about? He wants to run an errand? I'm going ice fishing. It's 7 o'clock in the morning on Saturday. He said, I fell in. When you drive me home, i got to change my pants. I said, this is not a good start to ice fishing. <laughs> Paul, you told me the ice was secure, brother. You're from Minnesota. Right? I'm driving my guide. The guy is going to mentor me in ice fishing. I'm driving home because he fell in. It was shallow water. So I pick him up. We drive home. We come back. Then we walk through to a guy from Minnesota. To Paul's a real outdoorsman. Like, I act manly. I try to pump myself up. But he's really, like, manly. Like, like he's like, come on. First, we got to jump this hill that's, like, eight feet. Like, climb over in the snow. And he's just walking like it's nothing. I'm, like, 25 feet behind because I'm, like, I'm not rushing. i got to keep my cardio. We walk like this is a, a trick. This ain't like a path to the thing. This is like we're taking a separate hike to this ice fishing place. I'm like, these brothers from Minnesota. And so then we get to the place we're going to ice fish. There's a huge sign that says dangerous ice. <laughs> and I'm thinking, Paul, are you kidding me? You fell in. And I had to say something at that point. I said, Paul, this ain't making me more comfortable, brother. 
But it ended up being a great day. We went a different path and we came out and I made Paul went all on the ice first and tested it and it was 12 inches, man. So we were good to go. It ended up being a great time and it was really fruitful. I don't usually don't catch. I catch like sunfish. I pulled out a bass. It was nice. <clears throat> I say all that to say this. Planting churches in the Northeast is like ice fishing. No one wants to go. It's harder. It's more rugged. You've got to have the endurance. You've got to know your call to it. But the fruit of it is unbelievable. What a privilege to be called to a place that needs the gospel so much. What a privilege. You guys know it. You've been in our culture. You've seen the godlessness. You've seen the lack of reverence for God. You see people bringing glory to themselves and not to the Almighty. You've even seen the devastation. I mean, how many people do we have to lose to addictions and suicides and how many broken families do we have to see? How many fatherless children do we have to see before we realize this place needs the gospel? This place needs the gospel tremendously. And we've got to contextualize in order to reach the people. What's beautiful about Restoration Road is a lot of us know the Boston culture already. And many of us came here from other places with the heart to learn the culture, to reach the people. Because we've got to contextualize everything. We've got to contextualize the language. There's a certain way we talk in Boston. There's something wrong with us. We talk a certain way. Not only in accent, but the way we talk through things and messages. The way we dress. There's a reason I do not wear a 22-piece suit here. I've rocked the tie once in a while. I'll sneak it on it once in a while. I just don't want us to get too legalistic. Because I don't want to have to bring people to the gospel and tell them how to dress. Is that crazy? I got to tell you, I got to convince you to dress a certain way and believe the gospel. That's too much for me. Come as you are. You can wear a suit. You don't have to wear a suit. You can wear pants. You can wear a dress. Just come as you are. We dress a certain way in order to contextualize to reach the people. Our music, there's a reason that our music is a certain way. Believe it or not, we didn't go extravagant with the service structure or the music and all that kind of stuff because we wanted to keep things simple because a lot of people are Catholic around here in name but not in devotion. I was baptized Catholic. They haven't been in church for 35 years. 35 years. Don't even know why they're Catholic. Just someone told them they were Catholic and they're holding to the ground like, I'm Catholic. No, I'm Catholic. Everything is not Catholic. What? You don't even know what that means. <laughs> oh, I, you don't even know what that means. But, believe it or not, meeting in the Catholic high school, they see a few statues, it gets people comfortable in a weird way. You're like, okay, they got some Catholic stuff up, I can go there. My mom won't disown me. <laughs> Sermon length. I try to preach roughly a half an hour. Last week was 28 minutes, sometimes it goes 37 minutes. But we're not going to start a message and finish an hour and 15 minutes later. I know some services, they start on Sunday morning, they get out Monday evening. Who the heck wants to go to church for two days? I'm a pastor, let me out. That's crazy talk. Sermon illustrations, sermon applications. That's important. House church, we realized that we had to contextualize our small groups. We try to do them like Seven Mile Road. Seven Mile Road, our sending church, we love them. They're great, they're healthy, healthiest church I've ever been to, but they, lead, they reach a large transient population. I walk in there, everyone's like, who, we got a Boston guy. He says, ah, 
It's just like how, you know, they raise a large transient population. The way they do home groups is much different because people don't have family around. So everyone's looking for a small group during the week to be around every week. And everyone bears their soul because a lot of them from the Bible Belt. So people come in, just as who I am, these are my sins, this is what do you do? Try that with the Bostonian. Ask the dude if he wants to do soul care. Like was in Seven Mile Road. They look at you like, dude, we have soul care? They're like, what would you just talk? What did you just say to me? Like you can't do that with Bostonians. You can't tell a grown man from Boston to do soul care. It's not going to happen. So we had to contextualize. We're not going to have it every week. We're going to have it once a month. And we're going to have it open. We're going to have a big meal. That's how Bostonians roll. We, we share things in a different way. It takes us a while to open up. But when we open up, we're loyal, we're open, and we're transparent. That's the thing about Bostonians. Things happen gradually, but when we commit, we're faithful to the end. And so we got to contextualize our small groups. We meet once a month. We had a great first time, and I'm so hopeful for the second time because we're learning to contextualize the people we're talking to, where I'm sent to. Now, <laughs> you have to see yourself as a missionary because people sometimes just, they think that missionaries are only overseas. They really do. They think missionaries are in Africa and South America, so they live here and say we should help the missionaries while forgetting that they're a missionary called the Greater Boston. If you're here, you're called, you're sent by ascending God. God the Father sent God the Son, God the Son sent God the Spirit, God the Spirit sent the church to witness. You're called to live as a missionary, to live among the unchurched. If you've only had friends from church for the past five years of your life, you need to reanalyze stuff and start meeting people. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Jesus hung out with people who other people wouldn't hang out with. We need to be a social people or on mission, and we do not want to just be this bubble. We want to go out as missionaries and reach the unchurched. What's unbelievable here, if you look at our list, so maybe we got 45, 50 men, women, and children who call this church home, which is a pretty good start after 16 months because we started from nothing. If you look at, I'm telling you, it's like 75% of you were either de-churched, meaning you haven't been going to church for a while, or unchurched. We've got people, I was at, a guy came last week, and we were at the sober house, and he didn't even know to call it a service. He said, that was a great seminar. What a seminar. And I said, that's what you want. You know, you want to reach people who haven't heard the gospel. But like Dave said, we need healthy, mature Christians, too, to help on this mission. So all the things are very important for this mission. But we planted this church to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ who didn't know. And that's a vital, vital part of our mission. So I'm not going to go through all the nooks and crannies. Some people want, how many numbers? How big are we going to be? How many churches are we going to plan? I, I don't want to focus on those things because you don't focus on those things to see health and growth. You focus on proclaiming the gospel and making disciples as the Spirit moves to grow people, to save people. Then he'll orchestrate what needs to happen from there. That's what the Spirit does. What we need to focus on every day, we've got to wake up like a missionary, called to a mission to proclaim a gospel and to make disciples among our church in Northeast where they need Jesus so much. I want you to hear how powerful the gospel is. Remember, the gospel is what changes people. Not kindness that's not rooted in the gospel. Not that you're a nice person. Because some people say, I'm, just gonna, I'm the only Bible that people read. There's a good little message there. I understand what you're saying. But the gospel needs 
The gospel needs words. And you want to live by example, and people see that you're living like Jesus. Absolutely. But they need you to share with them, too, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hear the power of that. So I just want to share this. If I could say what I, what I see for Restoration Road, I'm going to be honest with you guys. Because I hate hype men. I've always hated hype men since, uh, since I was saved. I just can't stand the hype. I can't stand the hype. I, I really... Some dudes get up here like, we're going to take the whole nation. You ain't taking the nation, brother. Or we're going to do this. We're going to... And when you hear the vision, you say, that was all about them. <laughs> or you leave and say, that whole mission was about how awesome their church was and how awesome they were and how gifted they were and how they figured out something that no one else figured out. I want to tell you how awesome God is. And I want to tell you that I think God has a plan for the Northeast that we get to play a part in. We're in a network that I've seen so many people have a heart for Boston. So many people come up there to church plant. Good men come here to church plant. There's so many churches who are getting a hold of the mission of God and the mission of church. And this place is not going to be the same in 50 years. Because there's men and women who are willing to give their life for the glory of God. I see God moving. And I, I've been a Bostonian my whole life. I've been here for 35 years. And I'm telling you, there was just in our network, there was only one church about five to seven years ago. Now there's like 15 to 20 just in seven years. Once again, ours isn't the only network that's doing church planting. But that's just to show you what's going on in many denominations who love Jesus. They're sending people up here on mission so people will turn to Jesus, be restored, and bring glory to the name of Jesus. But through Restoration Road, by the grace of God, I see many people coming to salvation in Jesus. And I don't say that lightly. I honestly believe that. I believe that many people will come to salvation through the work of this church, among other churches. I really believe that along my heart's soul. I believe that many addicts will be sobered by the gospel in this place. I think that many families will be brought back together in this place with the power of the gospel. I think many men are, men who are cowards and who live like cowards, will become bold men of God because of the gospel, Jesus Christ. I believe many women will find fulfillment and live in their life for the glory of God in this place. I see our children growing up, knowing God, loving the gospel, and living for the glory of God. I see all those things for his glory, for our joy, and for the good of greater Boston. And I think it's going to blow our minds. I really do. I think it's going to blow, my, blow our minds. Let's pray.